pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's edition of the Original Strength Podcast. Got a really cool show for you this week. I'm talking with Michelle Lyons, and she is a women's health physiotherapist. And she just, she knows a lot of stuff, but she teaches professionals how to help women, especially women that are aging, uh, 35 and up. I know 35 doesn't seem old, but apparently a woman's body changes around age 35 and onward. But anyway, Michelle helps professionals meet women where they're at and helps them deal with the issues of their changing bodies, especially if they're having menopausal issues, uh, pelvic floor issues, and uh, breast cancer uh, issues. But anyway, this is a wonderful conversation with a beautiful, wonderful light that loves helping people. You're going to learn a lot. And you're going to learn to ask funny questions. But anyway, pull up a chair, take some notes, and share this one with a friend. So, Michelle, you have a website called Celebrate New Liberty. Is that right? Yes, I do, Tim. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> what is Celebrating New Liberty? So, New Liberty is this great old English word that I came across. And it means the art and state of being a woman, essentially. So, I think we should celebrate that because... For a long time, women's health has been neglected. Um, I came across a book maybe about 20 years ago. It was by a cardiologist, Nika Goldberg. And the title of the book was Women Are Not Small Men. And essentially what had been happening in medical research was they were doing a lot of research on men and how men reacted to disease interventions or medications and then just sizing it down for women you know, because they couldn't test it on us because of those pesky hormones and menstrual cycles and things like that. So they assumed that, you know, apart from the, the bikini bits, if you like, you know, breasts and pelvic health were essentially the same. But of course, you know, we're, we're quite different in many ways. And my, my passion and my mission is really to spread the word on women's health, because I think for me, knowledge is power. So I love having these conversations with, with folks like yourself and with Sarah, um, because I think the more we can talk about the foundations of good health for everybody, um, really, really with a strong focus on healthy, consistent movement as a central tenet of that, I think we all win then. So you're a teacher of teachers, uh... <laughs> so to speak, right? Like you, you, you teach yeah. clinicians and, and other professionals how to best help women with their needs and their issues, correct? That is correct, yes. I teach, um, up, you know, before the plague descended upon us, uh, I was teaching all over the world and now it's mostly online. So it's great. Teaching is really my passion as well. And um, I do miss the live interactions, talking to folks in person, but, um, you know, I know it's kind of the in thing to to condemn social media outlets like Facebook and Twitter, but honestly, I think they're such a valuable asset for those of us working, particularly in healthcare. But I, I would say, you know, in many different fields, because how else could we connect with with so many clever people and learned colleagues all over the globe, and and really get to have these great conversations like like you and I are going to have today? Yeah, no, it's it's really. Uh, yeah, as much as I don't like what's going on with the pandemic, there are some good, thank goodness, where, where we are technology-wise and stuff so that we can still reach out and make, you know, contact communication and see eyes like this or in whole expressions. Absolutely. 
because I really miss seeing expressions uh, in the whole face. Um, so I do think there are some wonderful things about technology for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree 100%. So uh, being that you're a teacher of teachers and, and you teach professionals, what kind of what kind of courses or what kind of information do you do you uh, teach for, 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 for two professionals to help them help women better? Yeah. So my main, um, my main areas of interest are in pelvic health. And I would have a particular interest in the health of women in the 35 plus age zone. Uh, so menopause, uh, sexual health, pelvic pain, and, you know, looking at some of the stats that we, we just saw last week where breast cancer has become the most populous cancer in the world, looking at the not only the pelvic health, but the whole body effects of both breast and gynae cancer. So I suppose the short answer would be women's health, but my particular passions within that subset would be uh, pelvic health and oncology rehab. What is it about age 35 and up that like that really seems to change everything because I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, Tim. <laughs> I mean, other than I was 35 once, that's all I know about 35. So, <laughs> okay. And survived. Good, good. Basically what happens to women in this 35 to 40 year um, age range is that we start moving into perimenopause and ovarian reserve diminishes, hormone levels start to change. And, you know, I'm sure you remember, Tim, remember the things you could get away with doing when you were 20, you know, staying up all night and going to work. Still <laughs> trying to get day. away with those things, but I don't, <laughs> I no longer desire to do some of those things. It's harder work now though, right? <laughs> That's right. That's why I don't desire to do. <laughs> so, Basically, once women start entering into this perimenopausal zone, things do change um, hormonally, physically, mentally, um, psychologically, psychosocially. Um, we enter a time where it's really it's non-negotiable to start thinking and prioritizing your health. And it's also the the age zone where we start seeing the rates of issues like breast cancer and gynae cancer creeping up. It's a common age for women to start developing issues with autoimmune conditions. Um, it's that sandwich generation to a degree as well, because you've got, you know, a lot of women in that zone will have the teens, either tweens, teens or late teens and aging parents and a career, you know, to, to all balance. And it can be, it's a, it's a big time for burnout. You know, there's lots of busy women out there who are struggling to keep all the balls in the air. And as our hormones are changing, our resilience will change as well, unless we take steps to bolster it up. Movement becomes non-negotiable at this age, making better food choices, managing our stress, actively managing our stress and getting the big rocks like sleep under control and optimized really, really important for, for living well and for, for keeping our immune systems happy and healthy. But also as we start to move through perimenopause and beyond menopause, we start losing some of the protective effects of estrogen because estrogen is really strongly um, bone protective, heart protective and brain protective. And those are all conditions that disproportionately um, affect women postmenopausally in terms of mortality. 
um, up until menopause, we're really well protected compared to our male counterparts. After menopause, our protection levels go down, but because those disease processes manifest differently in women, they're not managed as well in women compared to men. And so we have higher morbidity and mortality rates when it comes to that. But it's also a time when we start to see rising rates of cancer as well. And particularly, everybody you know is familiar with breast cancer. Breast cancer has had great PR over the years. Everything turns pink in October. But for a lot of women with, with either breast cancer or gynae cancer, what happens is they, they go through treatment and they are left dealing with the after effects of treatment, but also with the effects of menopause and aging. And tr active treatment ends and they're just left. And it's like, where do we go from here? And it can be really challenging, not only physically, but also mentally and psychologically as well for many women dealing with these transitions. How much do, so in today's world, um, like I can think of my wife, for example, uh, professional woman and, and, and in now in the current situation, uh, working from home, everything's virtual, but there's no drive time to and from work and there's no lunch break. So you can actually get in more work. Um, and, and so meetings actually stack up now that would have been that you wouldn't have been able to have because you would have been driving to work or leaving work. So it's like you're always burning the candle, but you do have teens and you do have aging parents. How much does all that extra stress, does it, is it like lighting a match to a, or throwing gas on a fire for how it affects the body? Absolutely. We know that stress is incredibly inflammatory. So, you know, if we're constantly taking away those little outlets, like for example, you know, let's take your wife as an example. If she had a meeting, she had, as you said, the drive time to the meeting, she would have the meeting maybe she would have the opportunity to, to pop into Starbucks and get a coffee and just take five minutes for herself on the way home, on the drive home, using that time to decompress and reset for the next phase of her day. So many women now are really struggling with this pandemic because they are disproportionately taking up the, the burdens of homeschooling, of home care, and again, as you said, health care for parents um, and for everybody else. So if we are constantly revving the engine, what happens is from a hormonal perspective, um, we have the building blocks of our sex hormones. So all our sex hormones are essentially made from cholesterol and cholesterol is such a bad reputation, but cholesterol is actually a good thing for us in the right doses. And cholesterol is transformed into sex hormones, uh, estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. But what happens when we are constantly revving our stress engines, the building blocks of those hormones, particularly progesterone, which is that lovely calming hormone, which balances out estrogen, it gets diverted and it's, it's converted basically into cortisol and then its friend adrenaline as well. And we can keep doing that for a certain period of time, but if we keep diverting all those sex hormones away, then things start to kind of get a little bit shaky initially and then a lot shaky as we go on. Um, and elevated levels of cortisol are not only you know, linked to systemic inflammation, but increased weight gain, disrupted sleep. Um, really, we're looking at systems-wide failure. And if you are just revving the engine until 
the gas tank is empty, then what happens to the engine? You know, and that's what I'm hearing from so many women around the globe is that they they are just they're they're holding everything together, but barely. And when when are the dominoes going to fall? You know, and, you know, immune systems start to crash. Uh, sleep goes out the window. Tolerance for other people becomes diminished. Um, so really emphasizing the need for self-care. They've, they've been talking here in Europe about introducing legislation now that allows workers to officially shut off their phones in the evening. Because, you know, much as I love my phone and Lord knows it is pretty permanently attached to my left hand, but that ongoing access of work for us, you know, whether it's emails or social or meetings, we're on all the time and we need to be able to recharge our batteries because when we're sleeping, for example, that's when our immune system rests. It's when both our lymphatic and our glymphatic system in our brain cleans out all the gunk that builds up and gives us a chance to put some fuel back into the tank to face the next day. It has to be energy in as well as energy out. So really getting those big rocks in place. So nutrition, movement, sleep, stress management, and I would also say fun, you know, making sure that you're getting daily doses of pleasure in your life. Um, really important. So we don't end up medicating with coffee to get us going in the morning and the glass of wine to help us wind down at night, because that sort of path really leads to hormonal havoc and a really, really unpleasant experience with menopause, particularly. Mm. Wow. Um... So you mentioned that women, like, so, so breast cancer, yeah, uh, which that is like, I mean, uh, is it still one in four women get? One in three. Wow. Well, but no, let me, let me, let me just, just kind of get a little bit clear because the numbers get a little bit hazy. One in nine women will be diagnosed with breast cancer and one in 36 women will die from breast cancer. But we also know concurrently with those stats, one in three women will die of a cardiovascular event. So your risk of a heart attack is much higher than it is of getting breast cancer. It doesn't have the same branding success. Right. But when you put those two together, if you look at the cardiotoxicity of a lot of breast cancer treatments, and you'll see that there's a much higher rate of women who've been diagnosed and treated for breast cancer actually dying of a heart attack as well. It's, it's timely that we're talking about this in February, you know, obviously because heart health is, is, should be a big thing, you know, uh, with, with St. Valentine's Day around the corner. But heart disease is a much bigger killer generally of women. It's the number one killer of women worldwide. Really? And it's, yeah, absolutely. And again, if I had asked you before I said that, what's the biggest killer of women, you possibly would have been tempted to say breast cancer. I would, or, or just age, because they seem to last longer than men. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's, it's the number one killer of women worldwide. And that rate really goes up, as I said, after menopause. But the signs and symptoms of a heart attack in a woman are different. Um, we respond differently to the standard or male treatments. And for many women who are presenting to the ER with you know, symptoms of a heart attack, 
a lot of them are dismissed because it can be something like anxiety, upper back pain, insomnia, um, feeling gassy, um, nausea. Um, they don't typically, sometimes they do, but typically women do not get the crushing chest pain and left arm pain that men get with a heart attack that everybody recognizes as the standard. But th that's the standard male representation of a heart attack. Women have different signs and symptoms. So breast cancer treatment has come on so much over the past 20 years. Women are living longer to the point where we consider breast cancer a chronic disease at this point. Wow. However, there are so many side effects with breast cancer treatment. Once active treatment ends, particularly the long lasting effects of chemo, of radiation and of the hormonal treatments. So it's surgery is the mainstay of treatment, but the other treatments, chemo, you know, we talk about radiation as the gift that keeps on giving because the effects are progressive and cumulative for 10, 15, 20 years after your last treatment. And it, it really does demand a lifelong approach to living well at, during and after breast cancer treatment. So, okay, so you teach a course, uh, a breast cancer rehab course. But I'm yes, guessing, sir. I'm guessing a lot of women after they go through whatever horrific events they have to go through to be, to, to live and to be say, hey, you, you, we've done a procedure, we've done chemo, we've done surgery, right now you're good. Now we just got to keep checks on you. Um, but are they just set on their way or is there a standard protocol to help them get their lives back or their, their bodies back even? Sure. I think that's the biggest challenge that we face. Um, certainly COVID has taken away a lot of those medium and long-term follow-ups and interventions for women who've gone through breast cancer treatment. Um, it depends on the sort of treatment they've had. You know, if they've had say, you know, breast conserving surgery, what's, you know, usually called a lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. That's almost always followed with radiation therapy. Um, or if they've had a full mastectomy, plus or minus a reconstruction of the breast, then oftentimes the focus is primarily on regaining shoulder range of motion. That's usually the, the priority. But there are so many other factors to consider with with radiation. Um, we have this phenomenon called post radiation fibrosis, where over the next 10 to 15 years, the tissues will actively and consistently get shorter and tighter as time goes by. So unless you're really vigilant about good skin care, good scar mobility and movement strategies, that can become a progressive problem as time goes by. If you've had chemotherapy, um, you know, we talk about surgery being a very local solution to the problem. Um, radiation is kind of a regional issue. Uh, chemotherapy and the hormonal therapies are global whole person treatments. Uh, chemotherapy will affect every single cell in your body. And issues like a chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, where the endings of the nerves in your hands and in your feet become damaged, that can be really tough in terms of returning to exercise, which we know is one of the best ways that we have of not only preventing getting breast cancer in the first place, dealing with the side effects and dramatically decreasing the risk of recurrence, 
if you can't maintain balance while you're walking or exercising, that's a really strong deterrent to participating. So we have to be on the lookout for issues like that. Cancer related fatigue is another issue that we don't really fully understand yet. We see it with both chemotherapy and to a lesser degree radiation. And this is not like a normal tiredness where you feel tired, you lie down, you rest, you bounce back, you're ready to go again. This is really disproportionate to the, to the activity at hand. And the advice used to be just lie down and rest. You know, oh, you're going through cancer treatment, you poor thing, lie down and rest. And that's actually the worst advice you can give to somebody. Um, the best treatment for cancer-related fatigue is exercise prescription. Um, cardiotoxicity, we've mentioned that already. Chemo, some chemo protocols are really cardiotoxic. Um, brain, the brain fog, so we call it uh, chemo brain, um, but it's, it's chemo related cognitive decline. Word finding, coordination, memory can be affected. Um, and then if, if somebody's having hormonal therapy as well, they're going to have some pelvic health issues. Um, if somebody has an estrogen sensitive uh, breast cancer, for example, uh, they'll either be put on tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor to basically with a hormonally sensitive cancer, estrogen is like throwing gas on the fire. And tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors cut off the supply of oxygen to the fire and help calm it down. But estrogen deprivation can lead to a lot of muscle and joint and tendon issues. So you're supposed to stay on these hormone treatments for about 10 years after your diagnosis. Um, but most women don't stay on them for the full 10 years because the muscle and joint issues are too painful to deal with that. But again, we have a magic bullet in our toolbox and it's called exercise prescription. So we use our manual therapy skills to calm the nervous system down, to get a little bit of scar mobility. We use our lifestyle medicine to make sure people are eating well, that they've got good bowel health going on, good bladder control from a pelvic perspective. But then the ultimate goal, the pinnacle, as well as the foundation is really a functional exercise program that is doable, is enjoyable, and is actually going to help you meet your goals without causing you pain or problems. Um, and that's really what I'm, I'm enthusiastic about, is about giving other women's healthcare professionals that toolbox to say no, Treatment doesn't stop. Just because you finished your chemo or your radiation therapy, it's, you're not done. It's, it's all about now, where do we go from here? And let's really start um, to quote a, a certain uh, new president, let's build back better, you know? Let's really start working on getting you, getting you back to that quality of life, as well as just extending the quantity of life that you have left. So I, uh, we have a movement system where we are basically our core, one of our core beliefs is that movement helps heal the body and restore the body. Um, can you, will you be able to describe how movement can help prevent breast cancer and how it can help recover from breast cancer? Like you said, it's the magic bullet. So, and I believe, I totally believe that. <laughs> But now somebody else is saying it. So I would love your take on it. So 
I listened to your podcast with James Nestor a while ago. Um, we were talking about his book about breathing, which I mm -hmm. loved as well. And one of the things that you said is that the principle of original strength is getting back to the body you were born with. And that's, that's a really, that's a struggle with, for somebody who's gone through breast cancer treatment because their body has changed and this is the body they have now. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're, we're, this is our launching pad. So on a psychological level, exercise as well as self-guided manual therapy can really be a, a, an essential tool for helping you make peace with where you are on your life's journey right now on appreciating all the things that your body can do right now um, and you know to be to be perfectly frank that as long as you're still here there are more things that are going right with your body than there are going wrong with your body because lots of cancer patients really feel this sense of anger and betrayal on a physiological level, what we know is that for solid tumors, for example, like breast cancer, exercise actually improves the oxygenation of the tumors, which might not sound like a good thing straight off. But what that means is that when we're exercising, we're actually improving blood supply to the tumor, which means that the passage of chemotherapy cocktails, hormonal therapies, and radiotherapy, radiation is actually much more effective at zapping that tumor and mm. dealing with it. And, you know, again, if we're, if we're talking about the side effects of chemo, particularly uh, the cardiotoxicity, what's one of the best things that we can do for heart health movement. Um, if we're looking at tendinopathies because of hormonal treatment, again, we know that particularly isometric and eccentric work great for decreasing pain, increasing function with tendinopathies. Um, from a brain health perspective, we know that improving aerobic capacity, as well as improving sleep, um, that's going to be really helpful from a cognitive perspective. Um, if bone health has been compromised, well, we know that strength training, you know, increasing the load on the tendons and bones, that's going to attack from that parameter. Um, all of those things, if we're doing something like yoga, if we're doing our pelvic health training, our bodies are incredibly responsive to the loads that we ask of them. And with cancer rehab, it's about asking for the right load in the right way at the right time. Because we don't want to trigger somebody, you know, if somebody's had lymph nodes removed or radiated, they are at a lifelong risk for lymphedema. So we don't want to have, you know, our exercise strategy causing or inducing lymphedema. So it is very much that tailored approach, knowing the warning signs that the system is getting a little bit overloaded. But in the same way that we, we would really carefully titrate doses of chemotherapy. My dad went through colon cancer treatment last year. And when he was going in for his chemotherapy, two nurses would have to check the dosage on his chemo IVs to make sure that it was exactly the right dose for him at his weight and height and disease stage. And I think movement needs to be a little bit like that, particularly in the early stages of cancer rehab. Um, you can overdose with exercise. And what we don't want is someone to say, oh, I overdid it. That's it. I'm never going to exercise again because it's so important for them. So we have to be careful not to underdose or overdose 
And sometimes, you know, that's going to happen because with exercise, there's a certain amount of trial and error. We can't titrate exactly for weight and height like we do for chemotherapy. But the way I explain it sometimes is to think, and this is a, a metaphor borrowed from Jared Hall, I believe, um, to give him a little hat tip. It's like getting a sunburn. If you get a sunburn, what do you do? you avoid hot showers for a few days, you look after yourself for a couple of days. It doesn't mean you never go back out into the sun again. It means that you're just careful for a few days, and then you gradually resume normal activity. And sometimes exercise can be a little bit like that in the cancer rehab um, arena. Um, and it's about giving the people that we're working with confidence to try new things. But when you're trying a new exercise, for example, that you start off with a small increase in either reps or weights or a new movement um, and see how your body responds to that because everything changes with the different cancer treatments out there the, the cancer treatment can you know protocols can be quite challenging but movement is such an essential support system for people psychologically and physically that it's really it's something that I think we really need to get on board, that it's it's probably as important as the chemotherapy or radiation therapy that they're having. You mentioned this, um, the link between the movement and the, the mental health or the emotional health. Yeah. How, like, cause I can only imagine that, like say you're, like you said, some people feel betrayed. Um, and then you get a sense of like your body or your identity being maybe changed because of what you're going through. Like how, how, how do you deal with the emotion? Like is, is movement, I, I know that exercise can actually help with the emotional aspect of it, but that seems like such another, and I know nothing separate, like how you, your emotions affect how you move and how you move affects your emotions. But that seems so heavy. For people to walk through like I, I imagine what you're really helping people do is not just helping them move but you're helping them like heal emotionally as well yeah can you speak to that at all absolutely it's you're holding space for them as i said to make peace with where they are on their journey now things have changed for them and for a lot of women um they they feel whether it's breast cancer or gynae cancer because those those are the two areas that i'm I'm most interested in at the moment. A lot of women actually feel that they've lost that part of themselves that actually define them as a woman. And, you know, or they, they feel mutilated, particularly if their surgery hasn't gone as well cosmetically as they would have liked, or if they're having changes with radiation to, to their skin and to their appearance. And exercise, and to be honest, I would I would put breath work in the exercise category as well. Just being with yourself in your own body in a very mindful way. Um, it's it's really an honor to help women work through that. Um, it can be emotional. And your job is to hold space for them to to work through those emotions and to make peace. And it really can be a roller coaster ride from them. And it's it's a privilege to be able to to witness it when it when it does happen but that sense of that was then and this is now and here i am i'm still here 
and I am going to be taking charge now of my body and and moving forward with that because particularly during active cancer treatment it's quite passive people are doing things to you a lot and as you come to the end of that active treatment and hopefully you're exercising the whole way through that as well but it's a busy time you know there's lots of different things happening as you move to the end of active treatment and then suddenly there are no more oncology appointments there are no more chemo infusions to deal with you're left with yourself movement particularly slow mindful movement and that can be going for a walk it can be lifting weights it can be doing yoga it can be doing some self massage to really feel your feet on the ground to get back out of your head and back into your body again i think that's the biggest gift that exercise and movement can give us is to really connect get out of the busyness up here between our ears and back into our bodies again and and to realize that yes something bad really happened but we can control certain controllables now moving forward and looking after your body um can really be very affirming mentally as well as physically for women moving forward this this should not make you sleep any better tonight but i really like you you're awesome I'm sure I'll sleep much better tonight. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> well, that should it should have no bearing on that, but you should sleep just fine. Um, so, what for your for your uh, breast rehab uh, coaching course that you have? Do you help uh, professionals take the the stages or the area that the woman's at, and and so that they can understand it, so that they can help meet that person where they're at, so that yeah. for the prescription aspect of it, so they. So they know it's not too much, it's not too little, but you help them understand what is just right at the right time. Yeah, oncology can be scary for the practitioner as well as for the woman going through that. Right. You know, oncology has its own language. You know, what is the difference between a DCIS or a stage four? Or how do you know, how do you screen for signs that the lymphatic system is becoming stressed? Because the idea is we want to help these women and not harm them. Mm -hmm. So it's to take some of the mystery away from the language of oncology and to think, well, okay, if this woman has had a reconstruction and she's having shoulder tightness, but she's also having issues with her feet and with her balance, uh, she's not sleeping well, where do we start? What sort of a plan do we need to work on? Uh, what are the questions that we need to ask her to come up with a strategy to help her live well and to give her back her confidence. So I look at it very much from the perspective of we're not mechanics coming in to fix people. Uh, more from a coaching perspective, we have a toolbox. Here is my toolbox. Um, what are your biggest, what are your priority issues right now? And this is what I have in my toolbox. Would you like to try some of this? I think this would be appropriate for you now in six weeks time when you're at a different phase when you're moving into radiotherapy this is where i think we need to focus your attention um in the meantime how are you eating how are you sleeping what are you doing for stress management hot flashes you know because again there's so much that we can do from a non-pharmaceutical uh, perspective for the niggly things 
that people have going on, like the other bothersome symptoms like the hot flashes, for example, again, exercise, great for that. But also, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, guided imagery has been shown to be as effective as medication. And it's to show people that not only do we need to build up physical muscles, but we also need to build up your mental muscles as well. Um, in terms of, I tried meditation once, it didn't work for me, you know? Well, if you go to the gym once, are you going to have arms like Michelle Obama? Probably not. So we have to be able to integrate that aspect into our, our training as well. We're not just looking at the pelvis, the breast, the shoulder, the head, the heart, the feet. There's a whole woman there and she had a life before all of this happened and she has a history and she has a lot of different things going on. What can we do to help her? and to really help her build out her own toolbox as well. So that instead of, again, of us coming in as mechanics with this sort of power differential, like we will swoop in with our capes and masks to fix you, here are some things that I can teach you to start doing for yourself, um, to help yourself. Because again, instead of being a passive recipient of people doing things to you, now you become an active player in your own health and recovery. And you then are more empowered to be the captain of your ship, um, particularly when it comes to oncology, um, that you're the, you're the one whose voice matters in all of this. So given that, let's, do you have resources, or I'll ask this two ways, can non-professionals uh, learn from your courses? And or if not, do you have resources for the people to be proactive with their own health? for women to be proactive with their own health and for loving uh, family members to try to find resources for women to be proactive with their health. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the course, to be honest, is designed primarily for people working um, as either physical therapists, massage therapists, fitness professionals, because there's a certain skill set involved with that. However, you know, I have a YouTube channel. I have blogs on my website. Probably the YouTube channel will be the best place to go to. Um, what I try to do there is I know a lot of clever people and I like to tap into that and share their cleverness with the rest of the world. So I have a series on my YouTube channel called Meet the Experts. And it's not just oncology rehab there. There's everything from pregnancy, postnatal um, diastasis, as well as breast and gynae cancer. But I talk to colleagues around the world who've been through that, but there, there are at least six expert interviews about breast cancer there where I talk to oncologists, I talk to exercise specialists, I've talked to dietitians, and, you know, just knowledge is power. It's, it's a golden age in terms of knowledge availability, but not all knowledge is great and not all knowledge is accurate or appropriate. So I would suggest just go to the YouTube channel and check that out and have a listen. And if nothing else, hopefully, if you are what I like to call a normal person and not a women's healthcare nerd like me, at the very least, you'll have a list of questions that you can take to your healthcare professional and say, well, what about this? Is this something that I should be focusing on as part of my recovery as well? Um, you know, and I think that's that's really important that we we do get the conversation going because at the end of the day, um, the mission is to help women live well. 
That's very awesome. I will put the uh, YouTube page in the notes uh, of the show. And for those listening that do not like to read, what website should someone go to, should a professional go to who should like to read, but let's just say they're too busy listening and not reading. Um, what website should they go to to check out your courses and to learn more about what you offer? It's all at celebratemuliebrity.com. Awesome. That will also be in the notes, but for the non-listeners out there, you just heard it. But in case you want to read, it's in the notes section of the show. Michelle, thank you so, so much for spending your time and wisdom with us. This has been great, and I have learned quite a lot. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend.